The open source coding philosophy has enormous appeal to many software engineers, and with good reason. Open source libraries, applications, and operating systems are now essential to the overall technology ecosystem. And the number of open source projects is only increasing, but many developers don't know how to get involved in open source. Or they may have even faced resistance when trying to make a pull request to their favorite open source codebase. OpenSauce is a platform to help developers get involved in open source development. While the number of GitHub stars on a project is often seen as a metric of success for a codebase, OpenSauce focuses on the number of new contributors on a project. This number serves as a signal to help drive the platform's recommendation system, which pairs its users with open source projects in need of developers. Brian Douglas is a former developer experience lead at Netlify, and he was the director of developer advocacy at GitHub. He is also the founder and CEO of OpenSauce, and he is our guest in this episode. This episode is hosted by Josh Goldberg, an independent full-time open source developer. Josh works on projects in the TypeScript ecosystem, most notably TypeScript ESLint, the tooling that enables ESLint and Prettier to run on TypeScript code. Josh is also the author of the O'Reilly Learning TypeScript book, a Microsoft MVP for developer technologies, and a live code streamer on Twitch. Find Josh on Blue Sky, Mastodon, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and .com as Joshua K. Goldberg. Hello, and welcome to Software Engineering Daily. I'm Josh Goldberg, and I'm real excited to introduce Brian Douglas. Brian, do you want to tell everyone about yourself? Hey, uh, Brian Douglas, go by BWG on the internet. I am the chief sauce officer at Open Sauce. Yeah, happy to be here, based in Oakland, California. Can you tell us a little bit about what Open Sauce is in the first place? Yeah, so Open Sauce is the easiest way. It's like three words: insights for open source projects. Actually, it's four words. <laughs> on, on GitHub, there's an insights tab, and what we're trying to do is provide a better experience to get insights into the projects that you maintain, but also the projects you might want to contribute to. It started years ago in 2020. I was building a little side project where I was maintaining a couple different things, but also contributing in other places. And I need a place to track my contributions. So I created like this little CRM tool called Open Source at the time. But I found out that a lot of folks wanted to also participate in open source and tried to solve the problem with the whole good first issues, finding places to contribute. But what I found was a, an opportunity for folks who at companies or maintainers or projects to also set their project up for success. If they want to take contribution, they can draw that signal outside of like a hack cover fest. It's like day-to-day operations, raise the flag, be recommended for, for contributions. Well, that sounds great. How did you first get into open source though back in the day? Yeah. So I learned how to code through, I guess, what eventually became a bootcamp called Block. It was acquired by Thinkful and then eventually by Chegg. Back in 2013, I, I started coding for real. Like I'd always been like a, a good, a really good copy and paster and like could like copy stuff off Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow and SourceForge. And so I learned how to code, build Ruby on, Rail, Ruby on Rails apps. I needed to solve a problem using WebSockets and Node and found a solution on GitHub. And I, I Cloned the repo. It worked for me, sort of. I needed to, like, I couldn't run it locally. So I ended up reaching out to the maintainer by just looking at their GitHub profile, had their email right there, emailed them. They walked me through the Harmony flag in IOJS. Like, there was like a weird split in the Node community at that time and kind of like walked me through exactly what was happening in the community. I, I learned all about that and was able to solve my problem. And since then, I'd always been reaching out to maintainers and opening up issues and, and contributing. Yeah, because it's like easy way to get mentorship pretty quickly. 
That's great. In a sense, one could consider that experience lucky because sometimes open source can be a little less friendly and welcoming than what you've just described. Have you ever had instances where it has been less than stellar? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I always empathize because I, I do I do know on the other side, the maintainer could be overworked or could be a side project or thing they just honestly, like, frankly, might not care about anymore. Like, we put stuff out in the world, move on, we we have new jobs, we have new opportunities. So for that reason, like, I, I remember reaching out to a, a popular build tool in the JavaScript ecosystem and to make a few changes on their, their doc site. And was met with like basically 100% no, we're not doing this close issue. And I think for a long, long time, I internalized that. But when I met that, that actual maintainer years later, totally understood like where they were coming from and where they were. Now they actually involved with an, another tool to help sponsorship for maintainers. So I think that their healing comes with time. But I think a lot of folks, a lot they're, they're, there's a saying with the Stanley, imagine everyone's issue is the first issue. So I think imagine someone's interaction with an open source project could be their first ever interaction open source in general. So I approach anybody's issues or anybody's comments or anybody's PR as, oh, this could be the first time because I experienced that multiple times where I wasn't met with like good mentorship or even interest. And I don't think I don't hold it against any maintainer or any other project. I just think timing is also a valid variable as well. That's a very empathetic way of, of looking at open source. I've actually picked up a tip from you in particular that I really like, which was for a good first issue, don't just post the issue and say what needs to be done. You you once gave me the good advice of also include some sort of getting started guide of this is where you might want to look in code or this is how you get stuff set up locally. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, good first issues, it's a it's a whole meme and it's a world. Actually, funny enough, I was at GitHub and asked the question of like where the good first issues come from. And it was a internal GitHub thing where they applied that label based at either seeing the community kind of work around this first times only or Kinsey Dodds actually had and Scott Hanselman had a whole first timers only site and like identifying places for first timers to make contributions. The good first issue is this evolution of that where it's not specifically just for timers, but it's like if you wanted to have an onboarding experience or an on-ramp for somebody to introduce themselves into your project, that's a good first issue. So if the introduction is met with wow, this is actually kind of hard. You want me to do what with the compiler? Like that needs a little bit of like some some handholding or some explanation or like link to a blog post, link to the lines that you think someone could triage into or at least the, the file. And that sets everyone else for success. Otherwise, don't apply the label and it's making a regular issue and someone might someone else might be able to triage that and make it a good first issue. Sure. There's an argument to be made also, right, that not everything should be a good first issue, that you want to have good second issues, third and so on for maintainers, yeah? Yeah, 100%. Like if you're only doing good first issues and you go from project to project looking for good first issues, you're never growing. And I think there was a, a quote from, it was Mike Tyson, but it was actually misquoted to Mike Tyson. It was actually Muhammad Ali who said it first, like he doesn't he doesn't count sit-ups until it starts hurting. And I think if you're doing like 100 sit-ups, 150, it doesn't actually start working until you start filling your muscles like working. And I think with good first issues, it's the same thing. If you're only doing good first issues because that's the check the box to get the green square to do whatever, you're not really learning. You're not really advancing your experience. You're just doing it for the sake of doing something. That's a really good quote. I really like that. Currently processing that. Yeah, I, I only heard it well in the last couple of months. Yeah, this like applying that to just like my approach to life and also my, my own personal workouts as well. Like it's not about just getting 10 reps and maybe just do as many reps as you can and then call it a good workout. Let's switch topic a little bit to DevRel, because despite talking 
quite a lot and having done a lot within core software development, you've also done a lot in the space of developer relations. How would you describe what you've done so far in DevRel or, or similar? <laughs> How would I describe? You know, it's funny because like it's common question around like Dev, DevRel's purpose and its value and a lot of DevRel teams are being laid off. My introduction to DevRel was very similar to like me just doing open source. I just kind of did it because I needed to solve a problem. Some of my way into this like node WebSocket community and like this sort of swam. Like eventually learned how to swim and then started swimming in there. DevRel came out of a need. I worked at a company called Netlify as employee three pretty early. And I worked on their dashboard as an engineer, but I really I was learning React pretty early. Like 2016 is when I started doing React professionally. I did it a couple of years prior. And I just love writing blog posts about the React that I was learning and the stuff that we were solving within a production grade dashboard. So that correlated to user growth. Every time I wrote a blog post or got on stage, because one of my goals back in 2016 was get on stage, talk at a conference, there was user growth. So the founders actually asked me to switch from full-time engineering to a developer experience, developer relations role as an advocate. I actually told them no. And then six months later, they sort of like agreed to like give me like a sort of like half and half. It was like 80-20, probably like 20%. I'd write code, 80% I would go plan a talk and conference and do some traveling. And that was my introduction to develop, developer relations. And from like the point where I went full-time, six months later, I ended up getting a job offer to join GitHub. So I took that role and spent about five years working at GitHub, which like arguably is like one of the, the best developer tools companies out there. We never had a challenge of like awareness at the time I was there. Never had a challenge of like gaining awareness, but it was more about engaging community and like continuing to provide value within the, the broader developer ecosystem. So I did a lot of cool things like help launch the stars.github.com or the stars program. Did like the first GitHub Actions hackathon. Also helped get adoption for GitHub Actions in the JavaScript ecosystem and as well as Rust. Yeah, did a lot of other things. Every new feature that came out up until Copilot was involved in some sort of go-to-market activity or engaging community in certain ways where I found that DevRel really works, especially with GitHub. But GitHub's at, at a level where everything they do succeeds, like with the air quotes, succeeds. But with two and a half million Twitter followers or X followers and tons of other folks on their social platforms, when you talk about something from GitHub, people listen. So we started focusing on other things, which is like not likes and, and a bunch of other stuff like stars and, and hearts, but instead looked at engagement. Like how often does the community like interact with our, our content? was able to sort of like polish a, a proper developer relations strategy that actually pretty much scales anywhere else and like removes itself away from the rah, 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 get a bunch of stars, likes, and et cetera. Super appreciated that experience at GitHub. Fascinating. So there's a significant difference, you'd say, between the strategy of employee number three stage company and, say, a GitHub stage company? Oh, yeah, definitely, for sure. Like GitHub's already hit their product market fit. They hit a stride in like having massive adoption across ecosystem for being the collaboration tool for developers. Now, definitely other tools that no one's ever heard of, or there's other tools that people do use, but GitHub just had the hearts in mind. And the way they did it was the bottom-up strategy that very similar to what I did at Netlify. Former coworkers of mine worked at GitHub, so we, we modeled the same sort of strategy bottom-up, which is like get the hearts and minds and love from developers. Eventually, as those developers like move into management or move into being a director or a founder, they already know what they're going to use, which is going to be your, your product. It's less about selling and more about like solving a pain point and like the, the, the grand scheme of things. So I think a lot of approaches for DevRel teams is they try solving the problem incorrectly, which is grow a huge Slack community. Like if you have 5,000 people in your Slack, 
that's great. But like, what are you doing with that? Like, that's a lot of overhead and a lot of interaction. And like your day to day, if your communication is in Slack, that's great. But like, how are you really growing community when everyone just sort of waits for you to come and wake up at 9 a.m. to then respond to their their massive amount of requests and conversations? So really just taking a step back, kind of understanding like where impact can be made. I probably go to way more detail about my dev, DevRel strategy, but I don't know where, where the conversation is going, but happy to take a follow up question. Sure. I do want to hone in a little bit on how you're phrasing the roles and responsibilities here. A lot of folks in DevRel use nice terminology, such as we're trying to help users or trying to explain what the platform is. I'm detecting a little bit more of a metrics skew in, in how you describe things of having more of an impact. Is there a particular way that you look at measuring impact for DevRel or even justifying the existence of the team role department? Yeah, and I can start with like the way we measure impact even at, at GitHub was less about again, how many people showed up in your live stream or how many downloads listened to this podcast. And it was more about how many people commented or replied or how many people forked the project and built something that was unique to them in their situation. So as we were measuring, we're measuring engagement, really. Like it's the easiest way, like you look at LinkedIn or you looked at like impressions to actual clicks in conversation. And that, that's convergence, the engagement that we're always aiming for, which on a YouTube at GitHub, like with 2%, which is pretty low in most standards of YouTube, but 2% for a developer-focused company is pretty high because the majority of the stuff that's out there, it's usually low engagement. You might get 100 views on a, on a conference talk. So it's less about how many views are on a conference talk, but more what's the engagement. And engagement drives views. So as long as you're doing things that will help engage. The other things that we... I used, I used this saying all the time internally at GitHub, which is like, and be in the right place at the right time all the time. And so it was the relationship to the network that you would build. So I used to do this thing called Open Source Friday, which previously was like run by Rizal Scarlett. And then now is run by Andrea Griffiths, I believe might be picking up. Rizal just moved over to another company after I left. But what I'm getting at is the, the goal for Open Source Friday was never about how many people showed up. It was who the person that we were sitting next to and their community. So like when I had the conversation with open source maintainers and provide a platform for them, like they're bringing the community along for the ride to see this conversation, to have a conversation with me or whichever, whoever the host was. And then at that point, that's a relationship that we can establish and say, okay, well, we have GitHub Universe. Who should we have speak at GitHub Universe? And every year I had 52 people because I did that thing every single, every week, 52 people that I could pitch for doing uh, conference talks at GitHub Universe. So then when you look at that, okay, 52 people leave the conference talks, there's conference talks happen. What happens after the conference talk? Well, we're, we're going to launch things like GitHub Copilot. Like, who do you reach out to to make sure people can, like, leverage this thing? It works in their community that we've covered the bases. Well, I've got 52 people that I had to do conference talks. They were on my stream. Why don't we just reach out to these folks and give them a quick doodle demo? So, like, that relationship consistently progresses. But a lot of times, as, like, a dev rel, which we should be identifying relationships and building relationships, a lot of times it's, like, transactional. You have the conversation and you never talk to them ever again and you get a bunch of likes. You're super happy about that and just like continue to move on. And I think that we're, we're seeing a trend of that not working. Eventually, we're seeing a lot of teams being dismantled, seeing a lot of companies questioning if they need a DevRel person. And we're seeing a lot of teams actually being constrained. So at GitHub, for the first couple of years, we we're two people, two people in the DevRel team. And the way we would do that is that we could scale ourselves through other engineers to go and convince them to go speak instead of us. But we'd also scale through other communities as well. And I think that we probably need way more of that than a bunch of DevRel influencers. There's a lot of good soft benefits you've mentioned here, such as building those relationships, good sourcing for the keynotes, the conferences. Have you seen good ways to measure the positive impact on the product itself, such as 
you know, bug finding, review feedback, and so on? Yeah, it's. I think, and this is something that also we we had spent a lot of time with with the GitHub discussions team at GitHub, and when you can drive engagement, where you have some champions within your community. So like, if like I was the person, I always talk, called myself the party pointer. I didn't want to be the person always on stage. I wanted the people person who I could also find other people to talk to and connect with the network. So when someone asked me, "Hey, I've got a problem in the .NET ecosystem with GitHub Actions." How do I solve this? Like, oh, you know, I've got someone at GitHub you could talk to. Why don't you open a GitHub discussion, propose your question there in public, and then I'll I'll find the people to go respond to you. But if I took that answer in the email and I did all the sort of like orchestration or I answer the question directly, that person benefits, but no one else does. So the value that I, I was always trying to provide is like, can you ask this in the open? Can you produce it in public? Can we get out of DMs? So that way someone can, else can benefit from this, this resolution. And the benefit there is that I never had to answer the question again because I already had a, a whole list of solutions to solve the problem. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of reusing content as well. So like, I don't just write a blog post for the sake of writing a blog post. Like it's a script for my future video. The video is just my future talk at a conference. The conference and video and blog post is a future workshop that I give eventually if I get to that level. So every time someone DM me and I got them to ask a question about GitHub Actions, I would then take that. And what I did is I did 28 days of GitHub Actions back in 2021 on dev post. And every day I would just do an answer that I already answered as a blog post. I've limited myself to 500 words because 500 words is very obtainable to do every day. And it was just like a ritual of me just waking up, doing the question. And then at night I would record a video of that same question that I answered. Usually like Thursday, Fridays, I like I batch a bunch of videos. So I'd have a bunch of videos for the next week. But on my current YouTube channel, I've got 28 days, 28 tips for GitHub Actions, that a dev post. And what that did, as far as like impact of the product itself and make forward facing is we had a bunch of intro action interest and we kept getting more and more intro content. But what I need to do is build a base layer to then all the intro content's done. Now we can, we can start looking at more advanced content. And the, the push was always reaching out to the folks I, I was sitting next to and like the view, the JavaScript, the React communities and asked them, can we do actions 201? So like, I did all the 101 stuff I got out of the way. Let's do 201, 301 type content. Cause like all the, all the banner stuff is done. So I ended up like moving into like eventually going to write a book with O'Reilly. Sorry, not it wasn't O'Reilly, it was Manning. But I ended up bowing out of it because the this bandwidth. But the goal was ultimately to create a book in a series with all the content I, I I built for the intro to then walk away and like stop doing the intro stuff and then move over to like the more advanced things. But I found that really quickly. I'm not I'm not I don't have the tenacity to build an entire like I can do a course. Uh, writing a book is like a little bit outside of my scope and skill set. Writing a book is a lot of work. Take it from me. But speaking both on the, the video production aspect and the longer form, say, book production aspect, things move pretty quickly. Like GitHub Actions has been evolving since it was released. Do you find that there's a certain cost associated with having material already out in the open for multiple years? No, because for the most part, the intro and the beginner content doesn't really change. And like we were already two years into the feature. So the majority is still relevant and valid. And what I was really focused on, it's like for workflow dispatch or repository dispatch, like being able to call an action on demand within your repository or call an action from a webhook somewhere else. Those are two things that were constantly my solutions to so many problems for everyone that was reaching out to me that we needed to like talk about this thing because it was, unfortunately, it was this name weird. So like people didn't really know what a repository dispatch was. So I had to explain repository dispatch and that's the structure that still exists today. But now there's like a central place that people continue to hit my YouTube, hit my blog post, 
hit the documentation that we expanded based on the two other forms of content to then, okay, you can call webhooks into GitHub Actions is how you do it. Security, same deal, like permission-based actions, stuff that was like a little more dense, but still intro that had constantly people had concerns around security and GitHub Actions. We had this basically solve the problem. We already had the documentation, but no one's reading it. So how do we get people to the documentation? And as long as they get to the documentation, like that's evergreen. And a lot of my call to action in every video was go read the docs. Because if the video is out of date, before at the intro or in the ending, you're, like, you're going to the docs anyway. And the video itself is only a, usually one to two minutes long. Get in and get out. So that way it's trivial for me to go do another voiceover or re-record the demo and, and do like a part two or an abridge or updated. But I don't work at GitHub anymore and I'm not as active in day-to-day coding. So I probably won't go and update those videos. But it's up for anybody who wants to replace me. Like you can create part two of this or the 2023 version. I'll get right on that. It is remarkable how many parallels there are between what you've described within the DevRel role and what we've also seen in the staff software or senior software developer role. Things like cheerleaders creating content for videos that in some ways essentially lead to the docs. You've decided to describe yourself as DevRel, and I'm curious where you see that overlap or why you've chosen one career path in some ways over or along with the other. Like DevRel versus engineering? Yeah. Or even what is that difference? What's the difference between a DevRel versus a staff developer versus dot, dot, dot? Yeah. So to be clear, I didn't choose DevRel. Like I was asked to do DevRel. I said no. And then eventually it was asked again. So it was very clear that like if I were to accelerate my career, I could go at the time from mid-level to senior engineer. And that was like a viable path. I wasn't progressing as engineer as fast as I could if I just said, okay, I'll do DevRel, I'll do community, I'll like do engagement. My background also previously is I, I got a finance degree in 2008 at the last recession. The, well, currently we're not in a recession. So at me at that because <laughs> the definition of recessions is very clear. But then I couldn't get a job in, in finance because of that, that current market downturn. So instead I went to sales. And so I learned as an introvert, I learned how to talk on the phone. I learned how to engage prospects, but also I learned when to stop talking as well. Before sales, I actually had 10 months of collections. And that's how I got my first start. And I would call every, I'd call my list because you had like 20 to 30 people to call every day and ask the question of, hey, your payment didn't go through the last two months. Were there any changes to your card? And I would just stop talking. Because what I learned is that I do really well in frameworks. So if my framework was ask the question, stop talking, and get the reaction. 60% of the time, your reaction was, oh, my card expiration changed. Let me give you a new one. So I was like closing collections without being abrasive. Because I embrace, like, I'm not a abrasive person. I'm introverted as well. I was just learning how to talk on the phone. Like, that's that's how I could use a framework to my advantage. So when I approach, like, engineering, when I approach DevRel, I just need a framework. So my framework for DevRel has always been 101, 201, 301, 401. So if I can explain the base layer, like, what is, for TypeScript, what is a type? Or <laughs> what are generics? Or what is this? If that exists, then I can always move to the next thing. And if anybody asks a question when I'm talking about advanced content, I'm like, oh, what's a generic? Oh, go look at my 101 content. And then you get to move up the stack a bit. Then it's like, oh, let's look at some more complex types or let's look at how types improve testing. I don't replace it. Like you can start really getting to like a weird, like more advanced and then more esoteric or even like talk about how types are, are leveraged in other languages and other frameworks. But like you always have to have a base layer or else you're sort of floating around in space. And I think the biggest miss for a lot of early stage developer tools companies is they, well, it's not the, the, the case anymore, but when I was doing DevRel, everyone wanted to be super advanced, talk to like the architects, get the architects to buy your enterprise grade software and like keep every other developer out in the dust. 
but then what you're losing is you don't live in longevity and engagement and community. So if you talk to a junior engineer today, a junior engineer is probably to become senior eventually. A senior engineer might become lead staff, might become manager. So if you invest in early career developer information and content, you can expand your footprint. So as all the other engineers that are like basically phasing out or going to VC or going into starting their own company, you need to replace them with somebody. So if you never talk to the the first step, you'll never get to the massive scale or adoption that you really are looking to, to accomplish. So yeah, so in, in comparison, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's just all about frameworks. Like if you can just walk in, like if you're, if you like frameworks, use a framework. If you like building your own framework, document your framework, but eventually everyone should be doing some sort of engagement or DevRel or documentation as an engineer. The concept of frameworks or checklists or similar, I think, has been very helpful for a lot of people and gets brought up once in a while, especially when it comes to networking, which I also am an introvert and had to adopt some frameworks for. But let's let's switch back to you for a little bit, because this is a great segue. You also moved on. You left GitHub. You started a company. You were chief sauce officer. What happened there? What what was the story? What What made you make the decision? How's stuff going? Yeah, I mean, the real story is like, I joined GitHub six months before their acquisition announcement, got acquired by Microsoft, got to where most employees of early stage startups don't ever get to see their stock turn into real money. So it did for me. So I stuck around to fully vest because that was like life changing, life changing opportunity. Hit my four year vesting in 2022. So joined 2018, 2022, February, kind of like wanted to stretch my wings, spread my legs out a bit. I find out what was next. And like, it could be something next at GitHub. It could have been something next outside of GitHub. Ultimately, I took a sabbatical in June of 2022 to explore, like if I were to take open sauce as a side project, seriously, what would it be? So we ended up rebuilding what we have now is the insights platform, app.opensauce.pizza. And it's insights into all of open source. So like what we found is, and this is like all knowledge that I learned as I was at GitHub. So a lot of best things you can do as an engineer at a larger company is look at pain points and problems that you know the company itself won't solve. And that's your opportunity if you wanted to go off and spread your wings and solve a problem. You have a connection to a pain point. You've seen like the answers or the failures or just like the non-starting to be able to like, approach a problem. So I was meeting with open source maintainers every quarter, finding out all their pain points on whether it's GitHub or just collaboration. And the thing that I discovered was the insights tab. It was always underwhelming. It had like some data, but it's hard to get insights across organization. It's hard to get insights repo the repo. It's hard to get insights on your contributions versus my contributions, which is not about like a leaderboard. But like, I just want to know if you're making contributions, maybe I can make contributions those places too. And without pestering you and asking, hey, what'd you make contribution last week? Or hitting the GitHub search API, which is super expensive to use. We wanted to build a platform to make this easier. So 2022, reach out to DigitalOcean. We built a dashboard for them to identify spam, identify contributions across the entire Hacktoberfest ecosystem. And that was like our first look at like what we could do with open source as far as like providing insights across industry. And then we've since started a conversation with design partners, with foundations and enterprises to provide that same power, but also provide that same sort of insight across and compare against ecosystems. So we'll have a public announcement in the next couple of months about like what our approach is. So stay tuned, but definitely like check out our check out our blog. Great. So there are two open source areas then. There's the public open source space that you're working in and then there's the the company space. At the moment today open source is all open source. So that's our focus. But there is a concept of inner source. Like we do have a solution for inner source. It's not quite as well thought as our our open source side. But we're currently a team of seven. So we've actually just added two more engineers in the last couple weeks, actually last month. So our engineer and a designer. And this is now giving us a, a sort of 
space to start really thinking through like what the next level of our of our software is. So think of it as a way to see what's happening across the open source ecosystem. But if you're a company itself and you want to see what's happening with internally within your contributions and your team, we do have a solution for that as well. I've got a few user personas I'd like to run by you. Let's say that I'm a contributor. I've done a few first time or good first issues in a few repositories, and I'm not completely sure where I want to go next. Is there anything open source can do for me to help me get to that next step? Yeah, so open source, your onboarding experience, you connect your GitHub account, and then you choose one is your time zone, because one thing that's usually hard about open source is knowing where everyone's coming from. So we don't ask your location. You can share your location if you want, but like required is time zone. So we know how to interact with you and what time you're waking up, basically. Or if it's like 1 a.m. your time. Responses at 1 a.m. are very different than 1 p.m. So we also ask you your interests. So we have a, a range of topics, languages, frameworks. And we just ask you to choose a couple. So then we can then do some recommendations based on contributions. So if you choose React, we can recommend other React projects for you to contribute. The notion of like making contributions to React, it's possible but it's usually not the place you want to start. Like if you want to make a contribution to React, it probably would have been like 10 years ago. Well, not 10 years ago, maybe like five, six, seven years ago. But if you want to make a contribution to React ecosystem, there's so many other projects that could use your help. So what we've been doing is focusing on things like new contributors is one of the insights that we're, we're hyper-focused on. New contributors is better than stars. Like stars is a metric that people all centralize around. But if somebody gets 100 new contributors in one month, like that's a better signal than someone who gets 10,000 stars in one month. Because if you want to make a true, truly make a contribution, go to places that people are making contributions at. The other thing is like new contributors, another good inflection point where if it's a newer project, there's probably way more stuff you can probably make impact on day one than if you go to an established project that has already systems and a team and basically just have a lot of filters for making your contribution. So we have recommendations for that reason, but also we give a place for you to then showcase your contributions. So as you start leveling up, we make interactions. We have open source has highlights, and these are places where you, this is a place where you can share your contributions in the community. So issues, PRs opened, closed, like your interactions, you can highlight and showcase how you're interacting with open source because we don't believe that Green Squares is the only place to do it or make contributions. So we do have. A thing that I think is overlooked a lot in open source, which is blog posts. So like right now we're centralizing one blog post, like we probably end up doing some expand outside of it. But if you write like a dev post intro to TypeScript or intro to some random state management library, that is super helpful for especially the newest projects, because now everyone can see, okay, there's docs, there's the code, but also I can like see a story of somebody else making a contribution. And like we encourage our community to write content that is a uh, intro-based, tutorial-based, but also helpful for people to make contributions to other projects. So we, we've we just added those and we'll eventually add things like milestones. So like highlighting your first contribution to X project or someone else's first contribution to X project. That's an opportunity for everyone, everyone else to say, okay, someone is getting leveling up. Let me look at their situation, their roadmap, their journey, and see if I can mimic that in like my personal journey. Because like the challenge I've had like I have a finance degree. I knew how to use computers. I knew how to copy and paste. I knew how to write even code and CSS and JavaScript and, and mine. It just wasn't a path that someone told me I could go down because I assumed even the school I went to, like they didn't have a proper CS program. It was super small. So I assumed, let me just go in like a degree field. I could actually get a job. I didn't think computer science you can get a job in. 
But if I could show other people there's a path and we could show other journeys, like that's the goal eventually for open sauce is there's at the moment, almost four and a half thousand people who use the platform that we can show journeys of that we can showcase, but also we can attract companies to also talk to those folks for the purpose of perhaps recruiting, hiring, hackathons, what have you. That's great. And I believe skimming through your front page and your, your most recent blog posts, you do have an actual user testimonial or two of someone who went on open sauce, showed off their contributions and got a job somewhere. Is that right? Correct. We've had quite a few of those, actually. One of our hires, uh, Sunday, who's based in Nigeria, his interaction was the summer that I took my sabbatical. He showed up, made a contribution to our project, and then made like three more in the same week. So at that point, it was like enough for me, which usually doesn't happen. Usually get one contribution, the person disappears for a while. They come back to another contribution. They disappear for a while. But Sunday was different where he made the contributions and it was consistent and like seeking out the problems for us. So I'm super brand new. It was like, hey, Sunday, would you like to work on contract with us on a more permanent or not even permanent full-time basis? Like, let's just get more hours out of you. At the time, he was looking for his next career. He did a boot camp. First job out, out of the boot camp is open source for him. And it was a, we were able to like provide a mentorship and show him how to like properly interact in GitHub and interact with community. And now he's like one of our top contributors at open source right now. Well, congratulations to him and you. That's wonderful. Switching to a different user segment. Suppose I'm a maintainer and I am on your side here and I'm seeing there are the occasional people who do a first issue and never come back. Or maybe once in a while I get someone who's really good. What would I what would I use open source for here? How could I grow those folks? Yeah, this is a this is an opportunity. This is a thing we're actually currently working on as a maintainer's journey now. As a maintainer, you like there's a persona. There's like we use these terms like, as maintainers. We kind of throw them around. One term being like the typo hunter. Like this might be somebody who goes and finds specifically typos in a number of projects. The challenge is like you don't always really see that. Like if someone does a typo in your project, chances are they're probably doing typos in other projects or they're super invested. But like, how do you gauge if someone's like actually super invested or is really just like earnestly trying to solve a problem, which is like this thing was spelled wrong? Or are they going to every single project like yours and doing the same sort of typo fixing or the white space hunting? So off the bat, open source, we can show all contributions that this person has made across the ecosystem. So if it's if it's the latter and that someone actually is typo hunting, then you could you know how to interact. And this is there's a, a product that what's called Block Party. Block Party is a way to if I block somebody on X or on Instagram and they're like a bad actor, there's a chance that my other followers and my other sort of influencers also want to know who, who I block so we can all like protect ourselves against bad interactions. So with GitHub, they have like some pretty good spam tooling, but it's kind of disjointed. And unless you know, you don't know about it. So the the opportunity like we're looking for is like being able to build spam tooling into a platform. So like that's another thing we're sort of approaching. As a maintainer, you also probably always want to see where contributions are and like statuses and like what to interact with next. So we don't have that problem solved, but we actually have a maintainer survey that we'll be sending out pretty soon to like a select folks to start really discussing what other things we can we can provide value in maintainers. And I guess the last thing I'd probably mention is everyone's doing AI right now. And I think the 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 real easy if you want to learn AI is like take a repo and then build a tool, semantic search to ask questions to it. So we have that, which opensauce.ai is like the tool we built with GitHub Octurns over the summer. And never intentional to be like the tool we build in AI, but it was like the easiest thing for an intern to throw together. The real goal is actually to build something where we can actually identify up and coming contributors within the ecosystem. So if you want to take a hundred repos and find out who are the top Python contributors within this span of repos, that's what we're working on right now. So like, let's be able to find the trends of the contributors before they sort of get sniped up into Google and disappear in the cloud. We're actually building out a solution for this. So as a maintainer, if you're looking 
another problem that we're actually looking to solve as well is like the lonely maintainer problem. So if you're looking as a lonely maintainer, solo maintainer, person's keeping the thing alive, like you might want to look for somebody with a similar persona, not sort of like min- like matchmaking or, or dating or anything like that, but more of like there's somebody who also is in the same space as you. Like how can we showcase that and provide comparisons, but also give you notifications of like, hey, I know you're doing TypeScript. Maybe you want to talk to Matt Podock about his TypeScript interactions or talk about this person. Sorry, I'm like picking on you because I know your background. But it's basically like how do you how do you classify and personify like different types of contributors and contributions? in a way that makes sense, but it's also a way that's not game, gamified. It's great to like participate in hackathons, but the real goal is like, how do we build longevity in open source and how we help maintainers build community in long lasting relationships? Like the one I got when I first contributed to the, the socket library. There's an interesting problem, I think, with lonely maintainers. There's also the concept of a lonely package. Just to pick on a, a package arbitrarily, all contributors has had maintainers come and go over the years, and it's got a lot of interest. And that one in particular, there is a very high interest to maintainer ratio. It would be lovely to have some sort of matcher to help people on board and contribute to that one. Yeah, yeah. And we're actually working with that team <laughs> as well. It's, uh, coincidentally, we do have a, a solution for being able to provide more exposure in what's happening with all contributors, but also insights. And there's a lot of like non-code contributions that get shouted out within all contributors. So like we were actually starting to index a bit of that and be able to shout out folks who are consistent champions. And I can't share too much, but we're working with a large institution university about recognizing mentorship and recognition and the value of recognition and mentorship and how that builds longevity within open source and also builds more strategic ways for people to get funded, but also for people to get notoriety and also embedded into large ecosystems as well, which is not the goal for every open source project, but like if you do get a project that gets adopted by a large enterprise, obviously that gives you, well, it's not even obvious, but it gives you an opportunity for longevity either through financial or contribution, code contributions. That's lovely. One of the reasons I bring up all contributors, in addition to it being an excellent project with excellent maintainers, is that it's kind of, I think, trying to, in some ways, apply a hard solution of just these are the roles, these are the contribution types to a soft problem where there are, as you've stated, a bajillion different ways someone could contribute, whether it's mentorship, code, docs, helping on a blog, and so on. Do you think that that's a solvable problem? Do you think that there's some direction you can take long term to help surface those more soft, nebulous contribution types? Yeah. And this is the thing that we were attempting with the highlights to be able to highlight things like blogs and indexing things like all contributors as well, is that the opportunity there is like to be able to, again, like I didn't know there's an opportunity for me to even go into the tech world. Like I thought, okay, let me just get a job to learn about money so I can make money. Cause that was like the best, my best way up the social class or the social ladder. And I think a lot of folks hyper fixate on a green square because like that's the thing that we fixate on is Look at my green squares. But if you build an entire course on a framework or, or a, you build a YouTube video or you engage in community and answer questions and core and Stack Overflow, like that's the sort of unseen because like there's no green square. I guess historic Stack Overflow, you do get some sort of reputation score and metrics, but it's not the place you think of first because like I'm going through my boot camp, I'm, I'm graduating college. I saw on Twitter that I should be shipping code. I should get in green squares. I should make a contribution to some big project. Because like that's my only way out. And there's so many other opportunities as a way up and out or up and level up. And I think that as a I think as open source, we've been super disingenuous or we haven't really supported up and coming next level contributors very well. And the reason for that is like people are burnt out. People don't have the bandwidth. Like I don't have the bandwidth to mentor every single person 
that comes through open source, which is why we have a community, which is why we have moderators. But not every maintainer has that that bandwidth. So like what we want to do is I spent a lot of time at GitHub sitting alongside Nadia Ekbal at the time and Mike McQuaid. They were Nadia was working on the work in public book. And I remember specifically in Berlin, like we we're doing maintainerati. We were all in the same circle, talking to the same maintainers, asking answering the same questions. Or you don't answer questions. It's more of an unconference. So you just throw up a bunch of ideas. And the beauty of that is like I learned basically a maintainer what they need. <laughs> they need like all the tools that normal businesses have <laughs> without being a business. So like normal ma- like maintainers need DevRel, they need community management, they need product management, they need customer support. But it's all the things that maintainer has to do all of their own until they can scale a core team. The core team always becomes just more people writing code. So that it's still that maintainer doing the same stuff because no one who joins the core team does the other non, the soft skills. And it's until like the projects like a Rust or projects like even Vue, like you have the non-coding core team to help like dictate and provide more future longevity and roadmap planning to the project. But again, I'm going for the green square. So why would I join the core team to not write code? It's an opportunity that we can help expand the footprint by just providing more opportunity for folks to slide into places to contribute in a non-code way. I'd also like to take this opportunity to shout out the book, Working in Public. It's excellent. Highly recommend. In our last few minutes, I do want to touch a little bit on the business side of things because you have now embarked on this journey of starting a company. How is that different in your experience than, say, being DevRel, senior dev, et cetera? I would joke to all my DevRel friends that truly developer advocates eventually become like future CEOs. Because like if you're a technical and you can engage with community and you can engage with customers, you can engage with engineers, you kind of have the skill set to be able to start a company. So it hasn't been actually too quite different. The one thing that I think I expected is I would write way more code than I am right now. But like once we got the first, like the, the base product up, there was no need for me to continue to write code. Like I think one of the easier things I could do is hire an engineer to write code. The harder thing to do is go talk to a customer and go talk to a community or go talk to a foundation so like my day-to-day in DevRel, in, not even DevRel, in doing open source and running this company is very similar to DevRel. Like a lot of meetings, a lot of engagement, a lot of these types of podcasts and workshops and, and conferences, not a lot of conferences, but I think the difference is that I get to do it on something I love, which is I really, really hyper fixated on this pain point of scaling open source is hard, like growing community, helping maintainers, like that's all stuff that's like thankless stuff. And I've been lucky enough to have quite a few people who believe in me, who invested in this opportunity. So we did take VC funding re- uh, recently to provide longevity for us to solve this problem. And I, I don't think every open source project, every company needs to take VC funding, but I'm invested in seeing this problem solved. I'm not invested in like making lots of money. So taking a little bit of funding and like handing over some ownership to other people gets me to the place where I can solve the problem faster. That's the goal. And that's the reason why I decided to go ahead and take venture capital but for the most part, I'm solving a problem that I really want to see solved and I want to see expand. So like if open source is not the place that gets it solved, like I highly recommend everyone use the other thing as well. And whatever the other thing is, like definitely let me know. I'm super available on LinkedIn and, and Twitter slash X and happy to like have the conversations on, on future podcasts and future conferences and stuff like that. Lovely. You're not worried about long term, the implications of having VC funding and being tied to needing to profit off that? No, I think what it really comes down to is I think a lot of folks, they, I've learned a lot about VC funding. There's a really good book called Venture Capital by Brad Feld and a few other authors. And I think the challenge that most technical founders have is that they just want to build. And between VC funding rounds, like it's 18 months is the standard. 
So if you go heads down for 18 months and then come up and say, hey, we're, we're ready, we built the thing, but you never talk to a customer, you never engage with a community, you never found out if you're building the right thing, then the pressure's on. But from day one that I decided to go on sabbatical, I started a podcast called The Secret Sauce and started talking to future customers, started talking to people in the industry to validate, should I even quit my job to do this? Should I take funding? And I've asked, I've asked these questions to everyone who's been on the podcast. And I've confirmed that like what we're doing is the longevity is not even a problem to me. Having metrics, like I already had metrics at, at GitHub. I made I made up our OKRs. So having metrics and like trying to hit a goal and try to get on a phone or get on an email and, and talk to people and convince them to talk to you about the thing that you're solving. I did that. I did collections. I did sales for four years and sold network equipment to NFL stadiums to do Wi-Fi. So again, I'm an introvert, but like I totally understand the scale of confidence to hubris. And like sometimes you get too far in the sort of the pride side, but I, I have super confidence in like how we're approaching this problem and we are the correct team to, to be solving this. And whether it's, I don't think it's going to be an issue of us trying to scale because I, I, I think I, I've really honed in on a pain point. We plan on never charging individual developers. We don't want to charge maintainers. We have an opportunity to charge companies and foundations and folks who are making really big impact in open source that should make impact in open source, but no one's presented Sorry, I know we're like towards the end, but the, the challenge with open source funding today is everyone takes off their hat and begs for the next monthly GitHub sponsors contribution. And I think we've built an entire system that you donate and you beg or you create a religion, basically. Like, look at like what's happening with Bud or look what happened to React a couple of years ago. You have to create the religion where people offer 10% to then donate to make sure this thing continues to strive. And I think that's been also kind of a, a broken piece of the open source industry where if people are truly providing value, you should pay for the value. And I think these companies realize that they can they are getting value, but they're not paying for it. So there's, there's a whole other podcast we can have about this. But yeah, no concerns on the longevity of the piece. Yeah, I agree. We could do a whole other hour of funding explorations and what it's like to be a, a full-time maintainer. But this has been lovely. Brian, is there anything else you think that the audience should know or would want to hear from you in the last couple of minutes? For the next couple of minutes, honestly, like, I would love to chat with folks. Like, hit me up on LinkedIn. Weird enough, like LinkedIn's becoming my, my go-to social platform. I just find that the, the conversation is a little more engaging and inspiring. I'm still down on X, so be Dougie on X. Hit me up and happy to always chat. Yeah, honestly, that's that's about it. Stay saucy. Stay saucy. How long have you been using that phrase? Where did that come from? I think I started using it because we needed a closing tag for the podcast back last June. So yeah, we went through a couple different like closing tags of like, I think Jamstack Radio, I say, um, keep spreading the jam. And I think Open Source Friday, I forget what, I, I basically, it's like, how do I stop talking? <laughs> it's again, frameworks. Stay saucy became the framework of, okay, period, we're done. Well, on that note, we're done. Thank you so much, Brian. This was absolutely lovely to chat. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. <laughs>